0: This is Shannon in Durham, Chip in Durham, and Erica in Edmonton. And welcome to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, Episode 33, All Alone in the Night. And welcome to all our listeners. We are glad to have you back as we continue our way through Season 2 of Babylon 5, one of our favorite science fiction TV shows ever. As always, I've got uh, Chip and Erica with me. And because the
1: are... night belongs to... Oh, sorry. It's all alone in the night. Not because <laughs> the no, Got it. Sorry.
0: Wrong genre. It's very different. Very <laughs> gotcha.
2: Different.
0: <laughs> yep. Uh, so after having the, uh, the high of coming of shadows and the what I chose to call the switch in focus for Gropos eventually. (laughs) We are now to another episode, All Alone in the Night, that pushes a few things or brings a few things to the front that we haven't seen before that we will talk about during the first half of this podcast. And then, of course, as always, after our jump gate, when we get into spoiler territory for the whole series, what it means going down the road. So this particular episode uh, was, as usual, written by J. Michael Straczynski and directed by Mario De Leo, who we last saw in The Long Dark. And I have a few opinions about maybe why he was chosen to do that. But uh, first, I will open it up to uh, Chip and Erica. Uh, what do you guys think? Any general thoughts about this episode before we get into it?
2: I just like how things seem like they're rolling along Um, without going into detail because we're going to get there. uh, I just I feel like like the pacing of this season overall is not as rocky as it started out. You know, we had sort of ups and downs with, like you said, the, you know, Going from the coming of shadows to uh, to all, uh gropos, but I, I feel like I feel like it's more like little bumps and stuff as we're we're rolling along downhill, as opposed to chasms and cliffs and stuff that we have to climb. If that ridiculous analogy makes enough <laughs> sense.
1: No, uh, I, I'll I'll buy that analogy. It's a good episode. I think I think that. At this point in the series, Babylon 5 is doing a whole lot better at taking these sort of standalone premises and uh, folding the story arc into it. So while uh, Mm -hmm. Sheridan's misadventure with some um, aliens who like to fly around in spaceships made of shower curtains, while that (laughs) that experience – while that story was kind of standalone in and of itself – Back in season one, this would have been the whole story. There might have been a Mm B-plot. Here, the B-plot is all about the greater story arc, and it is folded in kind of seamlessly. So I like that.
0: Yeah, agreed. I think, and I'm not willing to say that the A-plot of Sheridan and the alien ship is that standalone, because um, I think it sort of kicks off a couple of things that um, we'll mention here and there uh, throughout the episode. Uh, but yeah, indeed, it, it's gotten much smoother at what we tend to call our exposition dumps. I guess maybe our arc dumps um, are smoothing out compared to season one and early in season two. I think.
1: Deploy the arc payload, and and boy, did we <laughs> did we not get a pretty sizable one at the end of this episode?
0: Indeed, indeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, this this kicks off a whole lot of things that we'll we'll be having a great deal of fun uh, talking about later on. So, uh, in order to get started, what you need to know about All Alone in the Night. Delen is a member of the Grey Council, the ruling body of Mimbar. She ignored their wishes when she began her transformation, and there have been questions over her status ever since. Back in Chrysalis, Garibaldi had found enough evidence to investigate the death of Earth President Santiago as an assassination. Almost immediately, Sinclair was removed from command of Babylon 5, and replaced with Sheridan, who came across as much more of an order-following military hawk than Sinclair, and any investigation was sidelined by EarthGov. Which leads us to this episode. Delenn has been summoned to appear before the Great Council and answer for her decision to undergo the Chrysalis transformation. While it's clear she's been railroaded out of the Council, she manages to hang on to her position as ambassador on Babylon 5. Despite her attempts to shield Lanier from the fallout, he quietly insists on staying by her side. Her replacement on the council is Neroon, who she clashed with in Legacies. His appointment throws the council out of balance, as was dictated at its formation by Valen, and gives a majority voice to the warrior cast. Sheridan goes out on a routine investigation with a fighter wing, and they stumble across an unknown ship. Sheridan ejects from his destroyed fighter in time, but is captured. Earth Force General Haig arrives on an unannounced visit and immediately lends his resources to the search for the missing captain. Aboard the alien ship, Sheridan is examined and tortured, then forced into conflict with first a Drazi and then a Narn. Sheridan manages to disable the Narn and remove a controlling device from his head. They work together to escape and find a life pod just as the ship is found and attacked by the Earth Force and Delenn, who could identify the harvesters and knew the location of their home world. Haig and Sheridan finally have their meeting, and Sheridan vouches for the command staff of Babylon 5 as loyal to Earth First and good candidates for the slow underground fight to take their government back from those who had Santiago assassinated. Sheridan then brings in Ivanova, Garibaldi, and Franklin— who all agree to help. And that is all alone in the night. Like we said, there there's a huge thing at the end to talk about a bit um, when we get there. Uh, but uh, the first thing we mentioned, you know, Chip already sort of stumbled once as we started talking about alien abduction. And my thought watching the episode this time around was, on the one hand, it felt like the classic cliche, and on the other hand, I was trying to decide if it was different enough from what we might normally see with a story like this, you know, especially given that back in Grail, we had that little comedic opener with uh, the Earth guy suing this couple of uh, aliens because their grandparents abducted his grandfather or whatever it was. (laughs) Um, So I, I was having a little trouble watching and trying to decide just how much I bought some aspects of the alien abduction thing. What did you guys think? I actually have that in
2: my notes as well, too. Now we've had you know two different alien abduction jokes and the aliens in both cases look very much like the classic gray aliens that you Mm -hmm. see in in all of the uh the media and pictures and stuff and i thought it was a funny little gag at the beginning of grail here um i liked that i liked the subplot i liked seeing captain sheridan as a man of action and, Mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff but when it came down to the actual like working of this this alien society that sends out ships to take take prisoners and test them and see who's you know ripe for invasion and who's not and all that it didn't quite work for me because like yes I realize that there are a lot of different types of aliens out in the galaxy uh, we've got you know a whole bunch of different kinds. On Babylon 5, but we're talking about, you know, hundreds of years of supposed alien abductions, at least on Earth. And mm-hmm. I mean, how many people do they need to capture from each society to, to decide who they want to invade? I just feel <laughs> like they're going to run out of specimens. um <laughs> <laughs> or are they just doing it for fun? That wasn't how it was sort of uh, sort of portrayed. So it just it didn't seem like the most thought out. I think most things in Babylon Five are really well thought out as far as the world building goes, and I felt like this wasn't quite the uh, the world building. You know, it didn't have the same amount of oomph behind it that a lot of things do because it just like it just seems like a weird pastime for them to to do. And you would think that they would get slapped down by more than just the Mimbari. Mm-hmm.
0: I don't know. I have an opinion, but Chip, what do you think?
1: They are actually different aliens from the ones in the um, yes, in, right in in, in Grail. Uh, their eyes look a little different, and things like that. And as a result of that, and, and by the way, they're called the Stribes, as in Whitley Strieber, as in the right. Communion book books.
2: <laughs> I didn't catch that. Yeah, yeah.
1: Too so, funny. so yeah, as Shannon points out you know we are going for that very same joke again and I don't know that we needed to go there for with the joke if if it had been a different looking alien race if it hadn't had anything to do with the gray abductions uh, myth at all I don't think that the story would have been harmed at all it might have actually been a little better because you don't get this mm-hmm. derailing moment of uh, okay it's, it's 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 the joke and all that Um, If they'd been Drazi, if they'd been Marcap, if they they had been any of the races in uh, the League of Non-Aligned World, I think this would have been just as good an episode, perhaps. Perhaps better.
0: Yeah, Yeah,
2: I agree. I feel like hitting that same well twice is maybe not the smartest idea, joke-wise.
0: Yeah, I'm not going to completely throw it out because um this is an episode where we get um an actor back that we've seen before, Marshall Teague, and we'll talk more about that later. He is the Narn um and there'll be more to talk about later on about that. So, I'm, you know, not going to completely toss this out as totally unnecessary, but I think basically my impression is the whole point of this subplot was to put Sheridan in a place where he could dream his dream. And I'm sure there probably could have been any other number of ways to do that besides the classic alien abduction, here come the drills and saws at your head type thing.
1: I agree, but at the same time, as Erica pointed out, this is Sheridan's first real man-of-action opportunity that he's had since he came on the show. and. You know, it's it's contrivance after contrivance to uh, make all this happen, but I'm kind of glad it did. Boxleitner did a pretty good job doing the Captain Kirk thing, you know, being locked in melee combat with um, aliens, and he was resourceful. You also got to see a great relationship uh, between him and Marshall Teague's Narn, um, and you you find out more about how compassionate and uh, committed... Sheridan is, you know, he's not just getting off this ship by himself. He's going to rescue this Narn who he's never met before, uh, you know. So I'm glad that we got that, mm-hmm. and I'm glad that we had this opportunity for uh, Sheridan to be um, sort of zoned out or exhausted or whatever, and all of a sudden um, he has this dream that turns out to be more than a dream because uh, Kosh repeats the closing line at the end. So mm-hmm. it is a kind of a trivial A-plot perhaps, but I, I, I like it because it is purposeful in tying us to the arc and to us getting to know Sheridan much better than we ever got to know him up to this point.
0: Something that crossed my mind as we were watching this A plot, when I realized that uh, the last time we saw Mario De Leo was with The Long Dark, when we were again dealing with sort of creepy horror aspects and an alien presence. I wondered if maybe that was part of the reason he um, was brought in to direct this one, because they felt that, you know, he'd done well with at least a similar atmosphere. In that particular side of the plot, I you know, don't know for sure. I feel that uh, the Delenn side of the plot was uh, also very well was very well done overall. From a directorial standpoint, I don't know if Erica, if you'll have some notes from Stephen at some point about that. But that did that connection crossed my mind. Yeah, he didn't actually say too much about the direction
2: on this one. He had, he had a lot more to say about the direction of uh, of the long dark mm-hmm. um, liking. And it, it even I noticed, and I don't always notice the directorial stuff as, as much as he does, but even I noticed some of the stuff in the long dark, um, you know, the neat uh, point of view camera shots mm-hmm. and, um, you know, the one scene between two characters where it's all one long shot with a camera just moving right. and following. And, and there wasn't anything that was quite so stylistic uh, and standout that it that it caught me in this one, except for, I, I do agree that the alien ship had a little bit more of the um, mysterious alien abduction type things mm-hmm. so you get you know i liked how he did close-ups on sheridan when sheridan was was you know locked down under the bed so we didn't have to see the the crazy mm-hmm. <laughs> crazy materials like digging into him or anything we didn't need to go for that level of gore right. when it comes to direction and i think box Lightner did a pretty good job of of selling the the pain and stuff and and yes it looked like there were shower curtains all over the place <laughs> in that uh, in that ship but but you know you you do what you can with uh with the low budget you've got and i think that he did a, a pretty good job of of making making it seem like a a claustrophobic in claustrophobic sort of environment where he, you know they're just he's trapped with with other people and is forced mm-hmm. to fight and, and even the fight scenes were actually fairly well fairly well directed mm-hmm.
1: so yeah it's yeah. a better it it he does a better job on this one than he did with the long dark i've got no problem saying that i was just taking a look at his um resume on IMDb. And he's not particularly had a whole lot of atmospheric moody or horror stuff uh, to his to his name. You know, he directed huh. an episode of Xena and the Untouchables and Baywatch and the Equalizer and Crime Story. So, you know, and he's made his bones as a cinematographer. And you know Alfred Hitchcock presents and Murder She Wrote and Hardcastle and McCormick and there Private Benjamin of all things. So yeah, yeah. There's your Murder She Wrote uh, link. So he's not a artisan director by any means. This is a, this is just you know he he's he's a jobbing director, and this is mm-hmm. you know this has its moments. Uh, but the atmosphere it has, I would credit that mostly to the script. And somewhat to the direction, and it's sort of a toss-up as far as the production design is concerned, because you're right, Erica, it is, you make TV with the budget you've got, not the budget you want, but mm. shower curtains.
2: Yeah. And when you're going for something that is supposed to be completely alien from all of the stuff that we've seen so far, you really need to, to choose another direction. And not only that, but it needs to be something that is kind of featureless, that doesn't give any clues as to to where they are or who it is that has him. So, I mean, it's, I, I think
0: given all of those limitations, it's, it's not bad. It's not bad. I okay. like it. Okay. Um, do we want to take a couple minutes to look at Sheridan's dream sequence before we jump plots? Sure. okay, because we've we've gotten into a lot of dreams lately because we had, you know Londo and his <laughs> dream a couple episodes ago, and now we've got Sheridan dreaming all kinds of interesting stuff as well.
1: And it's much more obscure I mean, you, you get flashes in um, Londo's dream. This dream is almost more purposefully opaque, wouldn't you say?
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it, you know, it, it ends with kosh, and I just feel like it was. <laughs> It was very perfect uh, in that way because the, the Kosh and the Vorlons have just been one cryptic single statement or word after another, after another. And that's kind of what the dream was. Uh, although Stephen immediately was like, it's a three eyed raven. I was like, no, dear. <laughs> <laughs> no Game of Thrones references here. Sorry. Um, but yeah. yeah,
0: it was pretty, pretty, pretty Kashi is what I would call it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And, you know, we can, you know, tear apart some of it um, a little bit more thoroughly in the spoiler section. But yeah, where Londo's seemed Londo's dream seemed like more of a, you know, past, present, potential future kind of thing. You know, what's happened and what could happen. Everything like this felt like, you know, things being thrown at Sheridan um, that are going to happen rather than anything in the past. And, you know, trappings that, you know, we can look at the idea of does a raven on Ivanova's shoulder mean? What is a dove on Garibaldi's shoulder, given that he's the security chief and his job is, you know, inherently com- uh, conflict rather than peace? You know, we, that, that's the kind of thing that, you know, people can chew on all day long. You know, I think that maybe I wonder this,
2: this kind of thing makes me wonder, did Sheridan go to art school briefly before he decided to join Earth Force? And is this just his, his subconscious being, you know, overly symbolic and, and ridiculous? Because it just it, you know, dream sequences need to be weird and surreal. But this one just struck me as like, as, as the the symbolism, whatever it represents, just seems to be a little bit uh, in your face. And it just struck me as a little bit art student. Hey, Erica. <laughs> Erica, are Mm -hmm. you
1: accusing Sheridan of having an acid flashback?
2: (laughs) I think I am. I think maybe I am.
1: I will allow it. Um, (laughs) One of the big differences between these two dream sequences is we were given information about the content of Londo's dream before we actually saw it. So um, we were given information that Londo had a premonition that... Jakar would strangle him to death and we see more of that uh and it and it adds more information Uh, this time we've got and i remember the good old days when this episode first came out and people on the internet were uh just trying to (laughs) dissect the dream sequence what does it mean what does it mean what does it mean and we have almost no information that can help you other
0: than that the, yeah, the only clue we have is that apparently it is deliberate, you know, if Kosh goes so far as to say, essentially, this was the first time we could get through to you, that, yeah. that apparently they've been trying to do this, you know, what what it means, they, they're not helpful in that regard, they just, you know, they just plopped it all in his brain because they could finally get into it.
1: Right, and we could still uh, write it off as being, um, you know, weird and not necessarily real and all that stuff until back on the station kosh greets sheridan and repeats you have always been here so it's it's clearly trying to communicate something but we have next to no information about what's actually being communicated and that can be fascinating or it can be really really frustrating or read as self-indulgent
0: and at this point we do not know
1: i i do wonder though erica what uh, our control group thought of the dream sequence
0: you know,
2: he he didn't even mention it. I think I, I think perhaps you know because when when you think about it from a story time standpoint, it really does not take up very much. This is not a long dream sequence. It's True. even shorter than shorter than Londo's. So when the episode was over, I I don't think it even stood out enough for Steven that he mentioned it. Hmm. So yeah I think okay. you know because we are picking this whole thing apart, we're going to to land out it, but even I have like next to no notes about it myself um mm-hmm. in part because like it's just it's just weird, <laughs> so yeah. So I think I think a lot of it is it's one of those things that, you know, someday Stephen will come back around on another rewatch and then he will see it and possibly and this is another case where I'm I'm almost a control group myself because I don't remember the specifics of what's coming. So I can't spoil anything mm-hmm. um, that, you know, he'll he'll maybe get more out of it on a second watching because he'll be able to to draw lines perhaps between one piece and and another. I don't think he was even I don't think he was even all that impressed when Kosh said uh, said the same thing. Stephen kind of gets annoyed whenever Kosh is around because he (laughs) is so cryptic and anything that he says is giving Stephen no useful information. And he just doesn't have time for that. So he was just kind of meh. So I, I think maybe that's why he didn't care so much about the dream, because it was just more of those pesky Vorlons doing their thing.
0: Okay. So uh, let's sort of jump over a bit. I'll be interested to get uh, Stephen's impression in a couple of minutes, uh, because we have Delenn finally sort of back in the spotlight and, and standing up for herself. And we get more information about what her current situation is uh, as she gets uh, called, summoned before the council, where um, they basically tell her almost before she leaves that, you know, by the way, you're off the council, but um, she's got to try and fight and hang on to her position as ambassador. Any, you know, general thoughts or ideas about that, uh, that side of the plot?
1: Well, if we've been complaining about how strong Delenn was in season one and how weak she appears now, at the beginning of this episode, she's hit rock bottom. She is shaking almost. She is nervous. She feels very much alone, as she uh, literally says. And she thinks it's all over for her, uh, that she might not even be allowed to return to Babylon 5 and whatever plans that she's up to that she went into the chrysalis for... It's all over. She's not going to have a role to play anymore. And she goes into the Grey Council chamber, and she finds out that she's been kicked out. Uh, She comes back to plead her case for the um, ambassadorship. She finds out that Elite Narun is back, and he's bad, and he's a Grey Council leader now, and he is an extra Warrior caste member on the council, which uh, gives the warrior caste unprecedented power. So things are not looking good for Delyn, and he is only too happy to kick her back to Babylon Five. Just stay there, Uh, stay, stay there. You're, you're not a, you're not a full Minbari. That's exactly where you belong. Don't come back. And then, when she is returning and she finds out about uh, Sheridan's abduction, she gets her steel back. Mm-hmm. And that and that is just so so cool. She has the information about who the stribes are. She shares that, and then she is flying into an effort to intercept the Stribe's ship with the Agamemnon, Sheridan's old ship, with a flotilla of Star Furies, and she is the one issuing the ultimatum. We Membari sent you packing before. You don't want to let you don't want that to happen again give up your people. So, by the end of this episode, Delenn is almost the Delenn we used to know. What do you think?
2: Yeah, it's I I completely agree. I love this episode for Delenn for for all of those reasons because I mean, she she really starts out just really personifying all of the little things that we've said before about how she's so completely at sea. Um, she's she's taken this great risk and it hasn't paid off the way that she sort of expected or it went in different directions. The reaction, at least, is not what she thought it was going to be. And yeah, her performance, oh, Mira Ferlin is just so good in this. Mm-hmm. I mean, her the close-ups on her face as she's learning that she is no longer Satai and she's being booted from the Grey Council are just, it, it's subtle, but it's incredibly evocative and And I just, I felt my own stomach just sort of dropping, dropping out in the same way that she must have been feeling because she just did this so well. And then... I think by the end of the episode, um, Chip, like you said, she reaches basically the I've got nothing left to lose point Mm -hmm. because, yes, she does. She does get to keep her position as ambassador on Babylon 5, but it's not because they think she's worthy of anything. It's because they are becoming more insular, you know, just, Mm -hmm. you know, as sort of the mirror of of Earth is and think that Babylon 5 is simply just, you know, not a worthy place to be sending one of their full blooded Minbari. So she's she really has lost lost everything and there's nothing left so you know what now it, it's it is hitting rock bottom and and recognizing there's nothing left to lose and building herself back up and I think that you're right she's she's not quite the same Delenn that we were seeing in first season and I think that's good because I think that Delenn was a little bit naive um she had been mm-hmm. had not been around the universe quite so long now she's been through some more stuff i mean she had probably been through some stuff before but but now we've we've seen it and she had never been brought so low in the past and now she has and she has her steel back and i think that she has also become a little bit wiser perhaps Um, After this, and I'm excited to see where it goes from here.
0: Yeah, agreed. And what I also like about this plot is not only what it does for Delenn's character, um, but what it does for Lanier's character. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. talking about showing some steel, she is trying her best to brace herself for losing everything. And she thinks that that includes, you know, that Lanier should not be part of her. He should not be poisoned or tainted by um, what she has done. Uh, and yet he very quietly, um, almost a little daringly, this time I noticed the fact that he sort of takes her hand and puts it to his chest, you know, it's like, um, that seemed a bit intimate to me this time around, and I don't, I think that's how it was meant, uh, as he insists, I'm with you, I don't, I don't care what this does to me, I'm with you, uh, and that, um, really solidifies Lanier's character, um, in the way we've seen, you know, like Veer's character in a few episodes turning into um, somebody else with a backbone. Uh, you know, Lanier's turn. Lanier's showing his backbone. Uh, I also like what it shows about the Mimbari, because um, up till now, we've had this impression... That generally the Mimbari are considered like the bad boys. There's um, some mentions that the Centauri didn't even dare try to attack them in any way because they were just seen as like too powerful. Like, you know, there's, there's the Vorlons and then there's the Mimbari and, and we don't mess with the Mimbari. But here we see, just like any of the other races on this show, they've got their internal problems. They've got people arguing back and forth about uh, whether Delenn should stay on the council, but she does get voted off, whether she should keep her ambassadorship. And then we get some, frankly, you know, really insulting things from Naroon about considering her. It's, you know, my analogy at the time was sort of like if somebody was was gay or transgender and somebody else in power was just be like, you know, you just get out of my sight because you're dirty now. Mm -hmm. You're you're not worth it. Um, So I think that shows like we've seen the Centauri um, and Earth as well, that these cultures are not monolithic and they don't all get along, happy-go-lucky. Um, the conflict is within these races as well as between the races, and I love the complexity that that brings to the show.
1: There's uh, one thing that I want to go back and mention about DeLynn, uh, and that is something called the Stockdale Paradox, Um A business writer named Jim Collins used to talk about it. Uh, Jim Stockdale uh, was an admiral. He um, also, oddly enough, was uh, Ross Perot's running mate once upon a time. Um, But he (laughs) he was a prisoner of war in Vietnam. And one of the things that he would say when the question was asked, how did you survive being in a POW camp when others didn't, was that... It wasn't the people who had the unrealistic hopes or said, maybe maybe they'll let us out by Christmas or something like that, who made it. Um, Because when Christmas came and went and people got disillusioned, uh, they were less resilient and didn't survive the camps or whatever. Um, It was the people like Stockdale who... Looked at their situation with clear eyes and you know faced the faced the uncomfortable truth, but faced it. Who uh, survived? Delenn has had her Stockdale paradox moment. She's been stripped of everything, and you know she comes out of there in the minute in the in the immediate aftermath. She's shaken, and she when she's talking to Lanier, she is sort of sounding like any person you've ever run into who got demoted at work, coming out of it and saying it's. It's a great opportunity for me. You know, I'm going to try something different. You know, she has that moment. and We've all seen that. And Mira Furlan plays that well. But she has some time to settle. She discovers that there's a crisis, that uh, Sheridan is in need, and uh, she has information that can help. And then, you know, she's the one who issues the challenge. So she's faced her, her yeah, stockdale paradox.
2: I like that, and she also then I think grasps on to that because uh, um, the, 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 this is something now that she can do. So mm-hmm. you know she's been she's been struggling with with losing her position and all that stuff, and something comes across that she has information about, and that she can actually take an active role and do something. And I wonder if if this had come up at a different time, um, you know, Delenn was just on the station and. the Stribes became a problem and she was in a position to to tell them about it. If she would have just said, here's the information on the Mm Stribes, you know, go... Go rescue the captain or whatever. Um, but if, because it's right now and it's right after she's had this awful experience that she just wants to take her own fate into her hands and do something that makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is the reason that she actually goes along with the ships and is the one to issue the ultimatum and stuff because she just wants to wants to take charge of something and have control and power over something in her own life again.
0: Yeah, I think so. Uh, so I wanted to know, Erica uh, was—I don't know if he mentioned it—is this Dylan enough for Stephen? Did that come <laughs> he, up? He
2: didn't say anything. At the end, uh, I, I think it, I think it probably was, but at the very beginning of the episode, when it's when it's her, mm-hmm. uh, he just said, "Oh, it's her." <laughs> it <was> exactly <laughs> his exact words. He was he was very surprised to see a story about Delyn. Um, I think maybe not genuinely all that surprised because he I think he had to know that it was going to come around to her again eventually, right? Uh, but yeah, so he was. I think he was happy to see her actually being part of the stage again. Okay. And, and for my own part, I agree with you, Shannon, about Lanier's reaction to all of this. I think, I mean, he's... He seems very sweet and naive in his, his backboneness. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, he's growing a backbone, but he still just seems just so kind of adorable about it. And I love the line uh, that Delenn says to him afterwards that, you know, I, I remember when you first mm-hmm. got to the station, you wouldn't even look up at me and I had until I ordered you. And she said, even when you were looking up, you were looking down, which I thought was a really mm-hmm. poetic, minbari sort of way to say something. And I, I like seeing him... Reach out in that manner and show her that he is—he is just a hundred percent devoted to her. And I just think it's very,
0: very sweet. Mm-hmm. And of course, at the end of these two plots, we have um, things come together, and Sheridan meets Haig. and holy, holy crap! Sheridan's been spying on everybody. Um, we <laughs> so, now
1: know who Sheridan really is.
0: And mm-hmm. looking back, you know, we've talked about how he's been very almost working a little too hard to be a nice guy at times and the the happy-go-lucky, wide-eyed puppy demeanor. So looking back at that, what do we think was an act? What do we think was him trying to to figure out where this command staff stood as far as the situation back home? Um, For me, especially watching this time around, it felt like several things fell into place in different interactions with Ivanova, which I kind of get the feeling he never doubted her because he knew her before. Uh, but some of his interactions with Garibaldi, uh, with Franklin, sort of, you know, finding when they when they cut corners or disregard regulations in some way, uh, why did they do it? What was their purpose? That sort of thing. What did you guys think?
1: I love that bit when he's on the... Uh, Babcom unit with Ivanova when she tells him that Haig's on the way and he's just smiling Johnny um, You know, it's a quiet thing I was going to tell you later but he's like you said he's ahead of time everything's fine we'll talk about this later not now bye and as soon as she as soon as the screen goes off his expression completely changes yeah
0: and at the beginning of the call too when she says it's Hague, for one second there he's just like oh crap so, yeah, <laughs> yeah,
1: but but that tells you that tells you a lot about what sort of a persona he's been putting on. And it feels like a genuine sort of side to him, but it's not all of him. And the, the core of the man is the patriot who um, mm-hmm. is more than just is more than just a jarhead who is. Chosen by Santiago to be uh, the backup if uh, something happened with Sinclair because everybody knew, just like uh, Bester said a few episodes ago, you know, Mm -hmm. I I thought that he'd be uh, more compliant. This is a little troubling. You know, everybody thought that he'd be the kind of guy that President Clark and the Psy Corps and hardliners and Earth and all this other stuff would trust. And now we find out that he's significantly more than that.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think we won't really know for sure until we get a little bit farther. Exactly how much of this has been an act? I mean, if if his complete demeanor changes when he's with. Garibaldi and Franklin and Ivanova. Then we'll know that it was it was more of an act. But I think I think Chip that you are probably right in saying that that this this happy-go-lucky, wide-eyed puppy who is enthusiastic about things is definitely a side to his personality. Um, I I do feel like he's probably playing that has been playing that side up mm-hmm. more uh, recently, just to to sort of keep a cover because you know somebody who just seems like hey I, like a puppy. I just I just want to be your buddy. Ha ha. That's the kind of person who's going to get more incidental information out of the people around them. and and yeah, he does. I mean, we knew when he first arrived that he was a, a highly decorated military officer. He was the captain of you know, the only ship that destroyed a, a minbari ship in, in the Earth Minbari war. And I mean, he, he, it, it did seem a little odd that somebody that was this just you know, jovial slap on the back, howdy howdy kind of a guy was was the kind of person who would be able to achieve all of that so I think Mm -hmm. we are now seeing through the the cracks and seeing that there is we keep talking about steel underneath in people in this (laughs) episode and I think Mm -hmm. that's that's what it is we're revealing more steel underneath some of these characters that we have thought we came to know Uh, either they're changing and and developing that steel or they're just sort of revealing it to us a little bit bit by bit
1: Yeah. It also uh, gives you a little bit of – maybe I'm reaching a bit too much, but here's a reason why Sheridan pushed for Ivanova's promotion. Here's why Mm -hmm. he pushed for her to take more of a role in uh, the diplomatic affairs. He's got a lot on his plate, more than he was telling us, more than he was telling them and so, you know, you you test Ivanova and you also clear the decks to make sure that uh, you're in a position to pay more attention to what appears to be a budding conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Well, not appears to be. We know Santiago, Santiago was assassinated, <laughs> you know.
2: Mm-hmm. Yep. And to, to Sheridan's credit, I like the fact that he does not enjoy spying on his mm-hmm. his fellow crew members like they could have gone a very different direction with that and made it just sort of be part of the job and something he accepted with no question because he's a soldier who follows orders but no he he clearly feels some sort of actual loyalty to these people as people and likes them as friends and does not enjoy having to to spy on them and complains about the fact that it's been six months and he thought yeah. he was just sort of left there you know to rot without being debriefed. So he's yeah. he's glad to see General Haig show up and, and take the reins a little bit. So he's finally able to bring these people in who he has now come to trust.
1: Yeah. And uh, when he and Haig says that, you know, he knows that uh, Sheridan's uncomfortable with all of this. It's because, uh, you know, that Sheridan's a patriot. And I don't know that that's exactly the right word, although that's probably a word that General Haig would use in that moment. You know, he's – this is a conspiracy. This is a military conspiracy against a semi-elected government. You know, presumably the Vice President Clark was elected – um before uh the assassination of santiago but as i'm watching this again this feels dirty it feels undemocratic and it's not patriotism that's motivating uh sheridan i don't think it's principle there is mm-hmm. a there, mm-hmm. there there is a right and wrong there is a rule of law and that's what makes it hard for him to spy on his fellows
0: Mm-hmm. and it, and it all gets tied back to the psychor again
1: yeah, uh-huh. Haig says it's probably, probably. Psycor, although <laughs> yeah. they don't know for sure.
2: Mm-hmm. And they don't know how to prove it, which, yeah, I mean, when you think about it, when you have a whole group of people who are able to communicate without actually using any form of traceable, you know, writing or yep. emails or anything, like you don't necessarily have to have a paper trail. You don't even have to talk out loud. There's, you know, even bugging somebody's office isn't going to get you anywhere. I, I like the idea of the Cycor as the big bad that's that may be behind this because that really, is, that really is an organization that's going to be tough to take down. So that's exciting to me.
0: Mm-hmm. Something else I uh, wanted to bring up that I like about this episode is that we've got a recurring character. In the room, John Vickery comes back uh, to chew the scenery a bit more, but not too much, uh, which was something he was able to do in Legacies. Um, we have another actor I mentioned, Marshall Teague, who we last saw without any makeup on him in Infection, and um, then we saw him the, with
1: a lot of makeup on him in Infection. That's true.
0: Yes, that, that's that's true. Um, <laughs> I'd forgotten about that. I'd blocked it out. Um, but, um, <laughs> Ikara! sorry. But you know, here we get you know the actor is back this time he's under narn makeup and he does a pretty good job with um you know with the limited screen time he's given um he he get there's a personality there there is somebody who's clever enough to figure out part of what's been going on uh self-sacrificing enough that he's like you know look you know you go you can make it um i'm i'm not going to So I I really kind of like that uh, about these characters, um, about these actors that come back. And, of course, we have, uh, for the first time, uh, General Haig sort of in the flesh. I think Chip, was it? um, Yeah,
1: he was in Points of Departure on a computer screen.
0: Okay, so we got to see him briefly there. Now we get more of the man. And Chip pointed out, um, amusingly enough, apparently uh, the actor for Haig, Robert Foxworth, was in the running as a possibility for Sheridan at one point.
2: He
1: was Which, a he was a backup in case Boxleitner fell through.
2: Yeah. You know, I could I could see that. I quite liked General Hay. He had uh-huh. he just he struck me as a good guy soldier. He just seemed to have that role down really mm-hmm. well. So he was he just seemed perfect for, for what he did. And and while he's no Boxleitner, I could I could see him in that role
0: for sure. Okay. Um he's also probably one of the Murder, She Wrote pipeline. Uh, He did appear on that show, as did our pilot uh, Ramirez, uh, a fellow who at the time his name was Nick Corey, but apparently that was a stage name. And he went back to uh, Jesus Garcia uh, later on. So you might see either of those names in uh, imdb.com at this time um so you mean uh, ramirez the guy who was obviously fated to die from the very first
2: moment well, he was on yes. stage suddenly interacting with of our main course. cast i didn't remember this story all that well so i didn't know at the beginning of it that he was that he was mm-hmm. going to die because i remembered that i just saw the way that he was suddenly buddy buddy with the command staff and i was like oh cannon yep. fodder yeah arguing <laughs> baseball
0: and making a bet that's never going to be collected that's yeah. never going
2: to be collected and uh, i
0: did like f- the baseball thing so um, mm-hmm. I thought that was an amusing little comparison. The idea that you know they're playing, still playing baseball, hundreds of years later, and uh, the fact that the differences in the gravity on the two planets would <laughs> affect interplanetary play. I thought that was something cute to yes. throw in.
1: Yeah, and the, and the Helen Keller line for Franklin was hysterical. Yes, yeah, and, and not not only that, but Garibaldi just sort of reacting both in that moment and then afterwards. <laughs> I'm like, okay, that. That was a bit much, right?
2: Uh, heat of the moment. <laughs> that was great. But Stephen, I, Stephen was like, Helen Keller, that's kind of a deep cut for that far in the future. I was like, yeah, but it's kind of a deep cut even right now. So... <laughs> it is. I, <laughs> it I, I, is. I'm okay with it.
1: But going yeah. back to uh, Ramirez, Garcia is just... When he when they're doing the initial conflict with the Stripes, um, he is, you know, he's just like all of the other a- extras in, you know, it's just a fight scene. But... When he wakes up and he finds out that he's terminal, uh, that he's already been dosed with enough radiation to kill him, uh, and he starts making plans for getting back. But I love the way, and it's a good performance. I love the way that he starts to panic before following through. That I've I've had a panic attack or two before in my life. That's real. Uh, You know, you're you're not. He's not just this big, bold. Uh, sacrificing hero you know he he's a he's a scared guy who didn't want his number to come up and he's coping with it and then he buckles down and does what needs to be done in in much the same way that delin does so it's a it's a good turn from a bit part that is clearly fated to die and is written just like telegraphed that early on uh the actor makes more of that role i think
2: Hmm. I'm, I'm going to disagree with you. I, I, I didn't think he was, uh, he was as, as awful as some of the guest roles we've seen in previous episodes. But I, it, to me, that I didn't feel like that performance was particularly strong, although it may have been simply in contrast with a couple of these other ones. Um, I agree. Uh, with Shannon that Marshall Teague because I, re- I seem to remember in Infection I didn't think he was all that great to start with either but once he got the makeup on I thought he was better um, so I think him here uh, with all the Narn makeup on he's just I think he's really good at acting through makeup and <laughs> and and prosthetics and stuff so I, I also thought that he was good and I quite liked uh, John Vercury as Naroon in Legacies um, maybe just because he was beating up the commander but uh, <laughs> I al- <laughs> but I also liked him here just you know kind of frothing at the mouth and, and just being this sort of reactionary reactionary political figure guy now uh, who's taken Delenn's place and and I felt like those two performances were so strong that maybe it just uh, mm-hmm. it, it didn't uh, and, and also I do have trouble with just because it's so jarring to see somebody who's completely new completely out of left field coming in and trying to just be friendly with our main characters for some reason it worked with Ivanova and Sheridan when Sheridan first shows up i bought their relationship immediately but usually like in you know with warren keffer showing up early in the season and suddenly mm-hmm. being friends with everybody this guy you know ramirez showing up and suddenly being friends it just it just strikes such a wrong note that it's hard i think it poisoned the rest of his performance throughout the whole story
0: have you guys got anything else to sort of think about or talk about before we go through our uh jump gate i will i will just say that as soon as it ended uh steven said "Ooh, plot is
2: thickening plots are thickening so <laughs> he was he quite liked this one um he he said that it was two you know two episodes in a row where where stuff's happening as far as kind of bigger plot stuff mm-hmm. even though there wasn't you know Gropos had a little bit of that yeah. and he really liked how, he was starting to kind of worry a little bit about sheridan about how sort of ineffectual he was becoming um and he was like this gives him something to do it gives you know he thought, mm-hmm. i think he. Stephen thought it gave him a little more depth to find out that he's actually got a lot more going on under the surface than we knew. So um, so Stephen agrees that this is, you know, we're picking up steam.
0: Okay. Uh, the only other thing I wanted to mention that I sort of thought this particular episode did fairly well with its theme of alone, all alone in the night. Um, because we have, of course, the um, idea of Delenn sort of being cast off and alone now and part of the staging with the um, with the gray council with her going into that dark room and just being left hanging until the uh, spokesman for the Grey Council shows up to tell her things and the way they isolate her later on and they're ri- they're ringed around her uh, when she's trying to argue to keep uh, keep hold of her position as ambassador. There was a lot of stylistic emphasis on the idea of alone in that plot, um, as well as the idea of you know Sheridan being completely cut off from any resources on the alien ship at first, uh, completely alone until he manages to, uh, to, dis- to disable the Narn and then make an ally of him. And then, of course, at the end, when uh, Haig and Sheridan you know, talk about all of these issues – that uh, they are trying to work against or con- um, conspire against the conspiracy, and again the idea that you know Babylon Five is sort of on its own, and uh, Sheridan left-hand. was
1: feeling beached all alone.
0: Yeah, and so, ra- yeah. and
1: Ramirez all alone.
0: mm mm-hmm. Exactly. So I thought that was an interesting sort of echo after echo of that particular theme this episode. So I guess with that, uh, we will prepare ourselves for our jump into spoiler territory. Uh, our next episode to watch is going to be Acts of Sacrifice, which um, I think Dylan talked a bit about in, in this episode. So perhaps there will be something sort of tying in. We will see. Uh, As always, uh, everyone who is listening is welcome to join the conversation. Uh, We have uh, chat threads up for um, every episode, uh, both spoiler-free for our new viewers and spoilerific for our veterans at b5audioguide.com. You can also chat with us via Twitter and Tumblr at b5audioguide, and we welcome everybody's opinions. We know you all have them. Please share them. And with that, we will jump into hyperspace. And we're back. And now we get to talk about all of the things that this episode starts or continues in the five-year story arc that is Babylon 5. And uh, the first thing I will jump in and mention and squee about is, yay, Talon! We have Talon here. That will be the name of our mysterious Narn. Um, He will be back in uh, a few episodes. They will hang on to this continuity. He and Sheridan will get together and have a drink and remember, you know, surviving together. And eventually, Talon is going to become one of Jakar's right-hand men.
1: And ultimately, Ambassador to Babylon
0: 5. The next ambassador, yeah. Oh right. Wow. Yeah. Cool. Yeah.
1: So so I'm I'm flashing forward all the way up to the penultimate episode of Babylon Five, Objects at Rest, and that one scene where uh Sheridan leaves Babylon Five for pretty much the last time and in the window there's just sort of uh panning past all of the replacement characters. All the characters mm-hmm. who replace all of the uh characters that we've come to know over the five years. And it is entirely appropriate that Marshall Teague is in that rundown. You know, we don't mm-hmm. we we see him here and there over the next uh, three and a half years of the series, uh, and it's a great performance. He does a great job.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm already squeeing over. And of course, I've forgotten the episode name at the moment. But when he gets to snap at Malari, because Malari's complaining about all the Narns being in charge of security. And he's like, you know, all there are primitive people, blah, blah, blah. And Talon has heard it all. And Talon takes his credit, his uh, identity card and checks it and proceeds to just throw his speech right back in his face. And which is perfect panache. I'm, I'm so looking forward to that now. I
1: actually don't think that that's Marshall Teague.
0: Are you sure? I think it is.
2: I'll be right with you. Now I'm just looking forward to finding out (laughs) who is it that says that.
0: (laughs) But uh, yeah, this is, you know, just like we had in Legacies, the birth of Narun, who's going to turn out to have a really cool sort of character arc throughout the story. Here we've got this innocuous introduction of this random Narn, who is, as it turns out, is going to come back and be a pretty pretty interesting character. Uh, A couple of other things that uh, this story continues or opens up... Are Of course, the first indications of the split in the Mimbari government, uh, the fact that at the moment they are out of balance with four of the warrior caste. And finally, first mention of the worker caste, three in the worker caste and two religious yes. caste, which, you know, Narun thinks is perfectly justified because it's always the warrior caste that um, is on the front lines of any conflict, yada, yada, yada. But that's going to have serious major implications as the Shadow War gets worse and uh, because of the warrior cast's choices that the Membari are going to drag their feet about getting in into it until Dilin just has to basically take up a whole nother group and the religious cast suddenly gets armed up with white stars and goes and takes the battle to the shadows. Yeah, this episode is
2: just the root of so much stuff that happens Plot wise, you know, in, in the season one stories in the spoiler space, we were, you know, we'd find little bits and pieces that were just sort of like little nuggets that kind of, you know, pointed, pointed towards something, you know, one event that's going to happen later, or one character that's going to leave or show up or something. Mm-hmm. And now it seems like we're getting to the point where the things that happen are not just like a little nugget of gold. This is like a vein of, mm-hmm. of some sort of precious ore that's just going to continue on and, and widen out. Yeah. Indeed.
1: I love how contemptuous Neroon is of Delyn in this episode. You know, he w- he was subservient to Delyn in Legacies. You know, he 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 he, well, he had to be. He had to be, exactly. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have to be anymore, and there's just outright contempt. Fast forward to season four and the Starfire Wheel. And having hatched up a plan to end the Civil War with Delyn, he sacrifices himself for her. And not only that, but renounces the warrior cast and mm-hmm. aligns himself with the religious cast just before he goes poof. Yep. I mean, yeah,
0: that's hardcore stuff, right yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. Um, we also have um, something that leapt out at me very loudly this time: Lanier's declaration, "I will not leave you while I am still alive." And mm-hmm. my first thought was, well, uh, hang on. Yeah, you do. <laughs> because, of course, you know, he does, you know, he he is in love with Delenn. He, um, uh, you know, certainly, you know, still in the admiration stage. But I think he's come to, you know, be um, crushing really hard on her at the very least, if not totally in love with her. And she's going to turn around and fall in love with Sheridan. And that leaves him on the outside looking in. And come the very long night of Londo Malari, he goes off to become a ranger and then objects at rest he makes the hugest mistake of his life and by inaction tries to kill sheridan thinking that you know that means delenn will come back to him and even though he thinks better of it it's, it's too late. late sheridan has managed to rescue himself and then he is gone um and he apparently you know never sees delenn again so
1: yeah um i'm not sure that i go so far as to his uh, motivations in this episode at this point, you know, I, I and I, I, I don't know. Um, I just is he feeling protective? Is he feeling loyal? Is he feeling love? I think it's more ambiguous at this point um, because it sort of comes as a bit of a surprise when you get to his confession to uh, Marcus next season that he loves Dylan. and then he just sort of tries to gussy it up. Inside. It's a it's, a, it's my love is more pure. It's more courtly BS. Um, so I, 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 I'm not quite reading that into him yet, but I'll allow for the I possibility am. of interpretation. And there you go. OK, I,
0: I think it's a mixture of all of the above. I, I, I do. I mean, there there is the, you know, he you know, his admiration for Dylan. He thinks she is worthy of continued support, even as the council is throwing her under the bus. Um, You know, I think there's that. I think that um, I think we've reached a point where he is, you know, if he's not in love with her yet, he's darn close. So I think there's a little bit of all that in there. Just, you know, him deciding that he's going to stay the course and he's going to stay with her my reading of
2: it is is that he that he is in love with her at this point and as much as he ever will be I don't think he's ever actually truly in love with Dylan in a real healthy fashion mm-hmm. I think that he is so overawed by her and has her on this amazing pedestal and yeah <clears throat> it started with him and maybe even still is a little bit with him just seeing her as this you know she is she's But at the beginning, she's Satai. She has all this power. She has this history behind her. And... He is overwhelmed by her beauty and her bravery and and all of that stuff. And I don't think that that ever actually turns into anything different. I think that that is exactly the same. Mm -hmm. It's just very, very strong in him. And he thinks it's love, but clearly it's not because she doesn't love him back and there's nothing healthy about it ever. And that's the only way that I can parse his his character arc throughout the whole series is to think that, that that is what it is. And this is we are just seeing the beginning of it here.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he sort of keeps all that sort of in check because there are more important things to deal with up until we mm-hmm. get to the fifth season. Mm-hmm. And say what you will about fifth season. I, I know one of the things that they were trying to do was, you know, the the line that the duration is going to be a lot longer than the war, you know, trying to it's a it's a season about empire building and it's slower and there aren't quite as many crises. So there's more time for Lanier to stew. Mm hmm. Mm
2: hmm
1: um so and
2: i just i think that his his affection for her is is never a truly healthy thing he i don't know that he ever actually sees dylan for dylan i think he all the way through sees this this glowing character that's just up Mm. on a pedestal and that is what he is in love with i would agree with that
1: yep consensus
0: yay (laughs) um and then, of course, um, we talked a little bit about it before Spoiler Space, but at the end, speaking of um, conflicts and things kicking off, now we've got, you know, a lot of information all at once about what's been going on on Earth. And, you know, the fact that Sheridan is, has been spying, uh, that he is on a side that is going to wind up declaring independence from Earth as part of the conflict— um, again, you know, a patriot to the people first, not necessarily to the government if the government is uh, screwing up. Uh, the hints about Psycor, uh continuing. Uh, also noticing in the dream sequence um, that at one point Sheridan is actually wearing a psychop uniform. He, his, his clothing changes oh. rapidly several different times. And there's like a couple of scenes where he's in the uniform and then you see the badge. Yep. Did so. not catch that. So yeah, that 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 was apparently a huge amount of uh, speculation back in the day on on Usenet.
1: Yeah, uh, is he is he really a good guy? You know, um, and that actually mm. plays in a little bit to divided loyalties coming up when the question is who is the sleeper agent for the PsyCor? And mm-hmm. maybe that's a little bit of mis- oh. intentional misdirection in this dream sequence, meant to suggest that maybe the sleeper agent is Sheridan himself. Yeah. And speaking of that dream, you know...
0: That's where I was going. <laughs> yeah. Um,
1: I don't know in the end that the dream ever gets completely wrapped up with a nice little bow. All of the different references in it have multiple interpretations. You know, is the man in between Lorien? Is the man in between Justin? Um, you know... Um, well, I thought it
0: was General Haig because at that time, Haig was helping lead the search for Sheridan. Right. So, yeah, there's lots of possibilities.
1: Right. Do you know who I am? That's that's pretty clear, um, and that is actually spelled right out. Every once in a while, we get the black and white um, uh, flashbacks to dreams, and, you know, so we know that Ivanova's a latent telepath, and we know that that was what it's supposed to mean. But I think that maybe this dream sequence is slightly too clever because I think that there's a, a lot of stuff thrown in there, and only some of it actually sticks.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it is is—it is very much like an actual dream in that way. Um, maybe more than it is, it, I think it works better as just an actual dream than it does as a portent sequence for us.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. It seems like the the main function of it is you know, hey, uh, Sheridan can hear Vorlons when he's asleep, apparently, when his mind is quiet enough, um, which is, you know, new information uh, that the Vorlons might be capable of this kind of communication or this kind of interaction with other, with other races. Uh, so yeah, the, then the rest of it, yeah, each, each part seems to have multiple interpretations um, as the series goes on in general.
2: And I th- I think overall it just I mean especially for Steven but even for me it, it was it landed with more of a clunk or a thud than it did uh with any kind of real weight um it's it didn't throw ripples into the pool that got me interested because it is just sort of I mean I feel like the real purpose it serves is to simply increase the the mysterious mood to be like, ooh, things are coming, things are mm-hmm. happening, and it's more than you think. But because we get so much other movement with the, the overall arc in this episode, specifically at the very end, finding out mm-hmm. about Sheridan, I feel like that vastly overshadows what the uh, what we anything that we get in the dream instead we're getting some concrete movement as far as uh, right. as who is is on what team and, and who's playing which side so I feel like it, it just it maybe it would have worked better in a different episode I don't know
0: yeah that, that was one of the reasons that it felt slightly like the whole purpose of of that alien abduction plot was to sort of get the dream in there because it needed to fit and this might have been a good place for it so mm-hmm. I do not know can we think of anything else as far as implications for the long arc?
1: Just, uh, we will never see the Stribes again. Of course. <laughs> That's right. And we will never see General Haig again.
0: Yep. We'll hear references, but we will, yeah. we will
1: We will get a couple of references to him off screen, and then he will be killed off screen because Robert Foxworth was scheduled to do Severed Dreams And took a different opportunity to appear on Mm -hmm. Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And for that, he was unceremoniously (laughs) killed off. Never let (laughs) it be said that JMS doesn't hold grudges.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's true.
1: So Uh, yet yet another powerful character that uh, we never see again. But at least in this case, we Hear about him for good reason.
0: Mm -hmm. Yep. All right. Well, with that, we will wrap up this episode of uh, the Audio Guide to Babylon 5. Again, please come by, check us out at b5audioguide.com or b5audioguide at Twitter and Tumblr. And in two weeks, we will be back to talk about acts of sacrifice.
1: A singing and dancing episode. Well, just dancing. (laughs) <laughs> i can't wait to see how Stephen reacts to the Ivanova dance oh god
2: <laughs> oh boy
1: you might need a stiff drink for this one
2: erica <laughs> that is a good thought i'm putting that in my in my uh in my calendar right
0: now yep <laughs> okay and until next time uh thank you as always for listening this is shannon and durham chip and durham and erica and edmonton And you've been listening to the audio guide to Babylon 5.